heart of the San Francisco Bay nuzzles a small island that is about 22 acres. This island is home to some of the richest, most macabre history in San Francisco history. Today, we are learning about the macabre history of Alcatraz Island. I will say before we start this, I've been to Alcatraz, so I'm definitely going to jump in here and talk about my experiences a lot. So I'm going to apologize ahead of time. Um, Rebecca, have you ever been? So, fun fact, since I found out we were doing this episode, I double-checked with my mom, and I have been to Alcatraz, but I was, like, nine, so I don't (laughs) actually remember, like, being inside or anything. That's fair. So, you've been, but you just don't remember it? Yeah. (laughs) Well, let's take you on the journey. Let's start at the beginning. I don't think people realize just how far back the history goes. So long before the rock became a prison, the island was actually a Native American colony for well over 10,000 years before European colonization. During this time, the island, which I cannot find the original name, was used for multiple reasons. It was a good fishing spot since there was a strong current and deeper waters in the piers. And of course, they didn't have the technology to go out as far as they could. Um, It was also used to collect waterfowl bird eggs that was used as food for community, as well as a holding station for citizens that had committed crimes against the tribes. It's kind of interesting that like even in the very beginning of things, it still like served a purpose as a jail. Yep. I (laughs) I find that so interesting. Like... There's just something about it, you know? Mm-hmm. Now, in June of 1776, Europeans had led an expedition to colonize the San Francisco area as it was heavily desired for its fertile land, location, weather, and its water location, which made it ideal for transporting. During the colonization, a Spanish naval officer named Juan Manuel de Ayala had named the island <clears throat> the Isla de los Alcatraces. Did I... Was that... It was great. You did great. (laughs) Oh my god, my 200 days streak on Duolingo is doing me proud. (laughs) He named it after the northern garnets he saw, but they were actually pelicans. So after the colonization, the rock had turned into a military fort, particularly an outpost, so the officers could overlook the ocean and alert of any incoming enemies. This was an operation until the Mexican-American War of 1848. In 1859, it became an even more powerful military fortress. By 1859, the fortress became truly one of the most powerful military fortresses west of the Mississippi. During its time as a military fortress, they would keep uh, prisoners of war there, as well as conscientious objectors, which is a theme we will definitely get into. And during the Civil War, Confederate sympathizers were sent to Alcatraz. Even after the Civil War, those opposed to government rule were held in cells on the island. Then, in 1895, Native Americans were sent to the island in large numbers as they protested land decrees and the national education system. So this location seemed to be the center of punishment for those with political objections for a very long time. I wonder if by then the island had any, like, spooky folklore just because it had been around, I mean, already for so long. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I tried to research that, like, when the first, like, hauntings were, um... There had been a few deaths on the island. There weren't too many, but there were definitely a few deaths that had occurred on the island. Um, Between 1875 and 1920, there were 36 recorded deaths on the island. Um, A large majority, 20, were from disease or sickness. Nine were accidental, five were suicides, and two were murders. The first murder occurred in 1891 when a captain had shot his wife and then turned the gun on himself. The second murder was in 19... 
1909 when Sergeant Roy Ford had thrown Private Thomas Malelli out of third story window and onto the iron gating. He was killed instantly and Ford then shot himself after. Jeez. So I don't necessarily know when it began, but it was definitely like around this time that murder was kind of coming onto the island a little bit. Mm-hmm. In 1854, the island was the first line of defense for any incoming enemies, so the military decided to add 100 cannons, bringing the total amount to 111 cannons to protect the San Francisco Bay. It was also noted that even before this time, the natives had warned the Spanish colonizers that the land was naturally evil and that evil spirits would be drawn to the island. The first reports of spookiness was around 1910, and soldiers had reported hearing fighting in an empty room, Random screams only to find no one around in distress and shadowy figures out of the corner of their eyes. So even before Alcatraz became the Alcatraz we know, there is still plenty of spooky things going on. Wasn't there also like a really large fire around this time that damaged like a lot of the island? (laughs) Yes. So in 1888, there is a massive fire. And that was believed to be started by kids playing with matches. It damaged two of the oldest frame structures, as well as the engineer and mechanics um, and mechanics quarters. The smoke was so thick and heavy that boats had a hard time trying to reach the island to ex- to assist in extinguishing the fire. It also brought thousands of people to watch from land to watch the island burn. Now, I will say the beginning of the 1900s is when Alcatraz really started to form as the island we know it today, as there is a big population burst in the military prison. As the Spanish-American War wagered on, objectors, POWs, and traitors were held at this location. And within the first few months of 1900, the prison population went from 25 to 441. Jeez. This is also the time that there were many deadly diseases and the military had decided to build a small hospital for inmates as they had a rule that inmates were had a right to food, clothing, healthcare, and shelter. And that was it. Prisoners were actually forced to start building the upper and lower stockade as the island was expanding with prisoners. Um, as we just discussed, it went from 25 to 411. So prisoners were kind of building their own prison at this point. I would also like to mention here that even though this was the military base, essentially, that there were still living quarters for the soldiers and their families. Military was building barracks that had a dining hall, which was kind of like a food court, um, a movie theater, a two-lane bowling alley, and even a library. And I have a cool story about all this in a little bit. Um, And I thought from the tour, they made it sound like it was under the prison. And then I read online that there are like barracks, but... I don't really know where on the island. I'm so not going (laughs) to lie to you. So, like, if you're way smarter than me when it comes to the island, maybe you can describe where it was because we didn't tour any of it. Some people said it was under. Some people said it was, like, in the rocks. Some people said it was, like, separate buildings. But I honestly was super confused as to where the stuff was. But it is on the island. Um, Wait, so some of of the stuff might have been underground? That's pretty interesting. Yeah, so supposedly, I that could be wrong, that could be right. I don't know. I really Either way, don't that's know. a good story. <laughs> I was stressed trying to figure this out. <laughs> so in 1907, Alcatraz is officially named a military prison as opposed to a fortress. There had been a bunch of renovations in the building in the island in the expansion of the prison part. By 1912, the 600-cell prison was completed and the mess hall was rebuilt and the hospital was quote-unquote finished. 
1917, the prison was renamed the Pacific Branch U.S. Disciplinary Barracks. From 1917 to 1933, the prison was blooming with population and had a reputation of rehabilitation. Because, well, on one hand, the prisoners did actually, the the prison did provide education, job training, help with getting a job after prison, and quote-unquote mental health help. We won't get into that. It was the 20s, so like how helpful (laughs) was it? But supposedly they helped with mental health. On the other hand, those with serious offenses, they were heavily punished and rehabilitated with torture. They were forced to work long days in the heat and cold and were barely allowed food, water, and they were um, humiliated and physically beaten nearly daily. Mm. Up until 1933, the military had claimed ownership of the land. Then in 1933, it was converted to a max security prison we all know and love after the uh, Department of Justice had bought it in 1933. So, 1933, I know we talked about the 30s in our lobotomy episode, actually, in, like, I think multiple episodes at this point, Mm -hmm. but did that transition have anything to do with the Great Depression? Yes, hugely so. Because of the Depression, the military had massive, absolute catastrophic military cuts. And particularly in this area, because they were still recovering from World War I, um, and the military budget had taken a big hit. So the Pacific Branch had lost so much of their funding because there were so many other things that needed to be funded. And that is when the Department of Justice had actually um, increased the budget due to the large boom of prisons and crime. And it was the 30s, so people were stealing and prohibition. So there were prisons going up everywhere. And so they had decided to buy the land to create Alcatraz. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And I would like to mention, before we get to like the meat of what Alcatraz is, that even during its time of military imprisonment, um, prisoners were not treated fairly, particularly Native Americans. Guards were very harsh on Native Americans and would do pretty awful things to them as punishment for objecting the government and the military. Native Americans had a long been telling people that this island was very cursed and that there were evil spirits that were bound to the island and evil will always reign. And there was also a high rate of suicides on on the island compared to its population. At this time, before Alcatraz is even like fully Alcatraz, there had already been reports of strange noises, voices and apparitions, as well as the feeling of not being alone, um, cold breaths, eyes peering back at you and just kind of creepy things like that so as time starts to go on people are starting to feel really uneasy on the island and those reports only increased over the years yeah i'm not surprised uh taking land that doesn't belong to you never really (laughs) turns out the way you think it's going to it's it it has a way of going back to you Mm mm-hmm So in 1933, the land was bought by the Department of Justice. The prison was then retrofitted to be a max security. This included extremely small prison cells. And when I say extremely, I mean, when I went in there, you could put your arms out at length and barely turn around. There was one bed per cell, so you didn't have any mates. Um, There was one toilet and one teeny, tiny, tiny, tiny table for inmates to write letters to if they were privileged enough to. The Department of Justice had also spent a pretty penny on making sure that there was one guard per three inmates. They'd also landscaped around the water to make it a more harsh fall, so if someone decided to try and escape, I would um, that it would not be as successful. I would also like to mention here that they had also made the windows so small that even if the windows are broken, inmates couldn't fit through them. 
And of course, this is going to be my first of many like interjections about my experience. But when I was there, the they had so many windows like facing the city. Um, so the prisoners were forced to look at the city and see everyone living their lives while they were trapped. Boaters would purposely sail around the rock with super loud music and like having fun just to taunt the inmates. If I remember correctly, there was an audio recording of an inmate who said that on New Year's Eve, it was the worst because you could see everybody truly having the time of their life while they were stranded. And it was a different form of torture seeing that. And I have to say, we'll put it on our Instagram, the picture that I took, which is not going to do it any justice because it was like a shitty iPhone at the time. But the view of the city from Alcatraz at night, breathtaking absolutely stunning even my husband was like in awe like everyone who went outside just like was silent for a minute just taking in the view because it was so breathtaking i one am a very big fan of dustin he's our podcast mascot (laughs) (laughs) we're gonna put him on the next merch drop his face but that's so depressing especially like i went and looked at the picture the, the one that you took and it's so beautiful like you can just I can just imagine like being in prison I guess you know and I don't know like beauty surrounding you but not you know not being able to interact with it that's so sad many prisoners had really said like that was that was harsh to like look out and not be able to go and just see everyone living their life and seeing this beauty and being trapped like that was just a different form of mental torture yeah So now we have arrived to the meat of the episode, what we know Alcatraz as now. In 1933, the former military prison was now a full-functioning, high-security prison. Inmates felt that the idea of being surrounded by icy water and in full isolation from land was a great deterrence from trying to break out. And don't worry, we will discuss in-depth about those attempts. Um, There were also rumors that there were sharks in the water, which we know isn't true but guards kind of kept that secrets to themselves (laughs) now in order to keep up with high demand and security there is basically an entire village on the island there's restaurants bowling alley theater a couple like little boutiques and a library this made it so that the correctional officers staff and uh, and staff could live on the island with their family Um, this was for numerous reasons it was to have increased security in case of a breach this was to make it easier for the family Um, they saved money by not having to cart back and forth families they didn't have to um then it also reduced the risk of if an inmate did get out on hopping on uh, a boat to go back to land so it really just it was for security reasons and financial reasons it just made life a lot easier it really sounds like a little military base like growing up a military brat that's just exactly what it is <laughs> yeah that's essentially what they did to it um <laughs> And what I thought, I am such a lucky person. When I went to Alcatraz, there was a lady who was walking around and she was super nice. And as we got onto the island, she was like, oh my God, this is so different when I was a little girl. Like everything seems so much smaller, but so much bigger. And everyone's kind of like looking at her like, okay, lady. Okay. (laughs) Whatever you say. And so then finally she's like, oh my gosh, like I remember when I used to play hide and seek here and we're like, what? who let the druggie on like (laughs) and so the tour guide finally was like 
what do you mean? And she's like, oh, dear, I, I lived on this island. And, like, you could hear a pin drop. We all turned and stared at her. And she like, pulled out, like, this little card thing. It was almost like a license that she was a citizen of Alcatraz Island. Um, and so it was really cool because on the tour, after you do, like, the walkthrough with the little, like, recorded thing, um, they give you free time to where you can go back and explore where you want. You can, you know, there's different little activities that you can do. So the tour guide was like, if you want, instead of just doing that exploring, why don't, do you want to do a question and answer? And so the woman's like, absolutely. Like, it's like coming home again. So of course, me and Dustin joined. It was so fascinating. So she started talking about how she absolutely loved and adored living on the island and how nice everybody was. She said it was basically a normal life. Um, Her dad was a corrections officer and she talked about how he worked all of the time. And even when he wasn't working, he was still working by patrolling the rocks and making sure the island was secure. She mentioned that she would go to the theater and the bowling alley with her friends, and she would study at the library with other kids on the land. Um, so she lived, like, just a normal life. I was shocked. I was shooketh. <laughs> at the time, I didn't know there was, a like, a full little town on the island um she had also mentioned that inmates were who were really good had earned yard privileges and if um for continued good behavior an inmate was assigned to row a boat every morning to bring kids to the pier for their bus stop so it was like her and like six or seven other kids would get on and an inmate was the one who would row to land um and then that's how they got to and from their bus stop she had remembered that her dad had just started after the infamous prison hostage situation, which we will cover. Um, and I'm pretty sure her name was like Barbara or Linda, something in that area. I honestly don't fully remember her name, but she loved living on the island and having friends over. And she said how they would play hide and seek on the whole island. And it would make just for some crazy memories. She said that they were always discovering artifacts on the island. And she talked about how none of the kids liked going out at night. Because they were a little creeped out. They felt like they were being watched. And they just did not like the feeling of the island at night. And she said there were just so many stories of ghosts and evil spirits. Especially like other kids would talk about seeing figures in their bedroom. Or outside their bedroom. And thinking that someone had escaped. Um, Just so many like cool stories like that. Um, And she said that one time there was she was looking out the window and she saw a man and she got super freaked out so she ran right outside because she was like i'm gonna be brave like my dad um and only to find no one was out there and no one was around Jeez, what a life like i know we kind of mentioned it but i didn't really realize that the correction staff had like their children living there too but i mean it sounds like she had a like a really cool unique childhood how many people can say they had to take a rowboat to their bus stop (laughs) I was floored. I had no idea. I thought I knew what there was to know about Alcatraz because I was, like, young and dumb. But I was humbled real fucking quick by that. (laughs) And that's, like, because she – when she talked about it, she made it sound like there were some things that were, like, in the ground or, like, under the prison. But then when I looked online, like, I couldn't corroborate that. And, like, some places they're, like, oh, I don't know. Maybe Hmm. someone's smarter than I am. I don't fucking know. (laughs) so that was such a cool experience to hear like someone who lived on the island so anyway um the 600 cell prison was massive and divided into into different uh three different cell blocks they ran parallel to each other there were cell blocks a b and c 
And then there was D block, which was which housed the hole, which was basically solitary confinement. Um, there was solitary confinement, and then there was the hole, which I thought was kind of the same thing until I went there. And basically, solitary was just facing a wall. Um, if you look at pictures, you'll see what I mean. But the hole was where it wasn't a jail cell. It was slightly bigger than your jail cell, but there was like two rows of doors and it was complete darkness. You didn't have a toilet. You peed into a hole in the ground. Um, you didn't have a sink and it like you slept on the cement floor. It was nuts. Hmm. Um, if you were staying in the hole, you were to stay there for 24 hours a day. You got one hour outside a week. And the hole had such a bad reputation that it did stop inmates from committing infractions. Like, people were like, I'll go to solitary, but I'm not going to the hole. Um, it was well worth mentioning, too, that the cell blocks were named after streets. So there was Broadway, which was named after, like, Broadway, New York, um, which was the dividing cell between cell blocks B and C. And then there was also Michigan Ave, Park Ave, and Times Square. Can you talk a little bit more about, like, what treatment was like while you were in the hole? Oh, boy. Um, well, it was solitary confinement in one of, if not the most strict penitentiary in the country. So not wonderful. Guards were particularly awful to those who were thrown in the hole. They would sometimes withhold food while other times forcing inmates to eat if they were on a hunger strike. They would force prisoners into sensory deprivation for days on end. If a prisoner even stepped out of line, they would take away um, the one hour a week for a breather. The cell was the same size as other cells. Um, it was, like I said, just a tiny bit bigger. But you were completely surrounded by steel. So you there was no light. There was no sunlight. You couldn't read. You couldn't write. You just sat there for days on end with no concept of time. They could force you to eat. They could force you to starve. It was really just what the guards wanted to control at the time. Um, the whole... The original version of the hole was a Spanish dungeon, which was essentially a basement. It was old cells from the fortress that were under the big house that they like kind of built on top of. And this is where the inmates would go. Um, they were starved, tortured, sleep deprived, chained to the wall, and brutally beaten many times. Fucking yikes. Jesus. Yeah. So not great treatment. No. So for the layout of the penitentiary, each cell block was three tiers high. The, um, the prison also had a cafeteria, a library, a warden's office, an outdoor area, a barber shop, and a visiting area. Um, also the Spanish dungeon, which we mentioned, which was below cell block A. This was used for mismanaged inmates and were cons was considered worse than solitary because inmates were normally handcuffed to the wall. The first warden of Alcatraz, James Johnston, had enacted a silence policy. Inmates were not to utter a word. The guards were told to beat any inmate that even coughed too loudly, which was kind of hard with tuberculosis going around. <laughs> guards were trying to obey the warden, but felt it was complete. Uh, it was very difficult to kind of follow that. Um, and the inmates were not even allowed to talk during lunch or at rec time in the yard. Like, imagine trying to play baseball or, like, basketball and not being able to say anything. So he, this warden definitely had a reputation for being tough and very tough on inmates. I would also like to note here that Alcatraz was kind of a dumping ground from other prisons and penitentiaries. It's not like how prisons work where, like, you go to court and get sentenced to the closest prison or, like, whatever. 
these there were inmates from all over and the first few inmates were actual leftover from the army penitentiary um and other inmates just came in from others penitentiaries because they couldn't um because like the penitentiaries couldn't handle them essentially so i know that there's some pretty like infamous inmates that there are (laughs) (laughs) so there are many famous inmates some of the most famous being al capone whitey bulger robert stroud aka the birdman um george machine gun kelly just to name a few al capone had actually spent time at east state penitentiary as well and when i toured there they had his cell still up and our bro straight up had it made he was living the luxurious lifestyle at Eastern State Penitentiary, and he was clearly favored by guards. Like, if you see pictures of his prison cell, it's wild. Um, <laughs> this caused a lot of fights with other inmates, um, especially because, like, he was clearly favored by guards, and that's not a that's not a position you want to have. So, that was complete opposite in Alcatraz, because in Alcatraz, they had bumpkiss. Nothing, nada, zitch, zero, just nothing so he had to convince the warden to let him even be in a band called the rock islanders (laughs) and for one hour a day they allowed they were allowed to play instruments and this was a highly coveted spot to be in and was only allowed to upstanding inmates um i love that first of all the rock islanders (laughs) i wonder if like i'm sure none of their music is anywhere we could possibly access it but did you did you did you get to hear any on the tour or anything I do believe that there there was. If, um, now that you say it, I think I do remember when there was a tour and there was, um, when you go by the showers, they'll tell you that that's where inmates would like practice when no one was around so that they didn't bother anybody because they didn't want to get beaten up. Oh, okay. Uh, so I know that Al Capone was famous for like being a gangster, but what was he actually like in prison for? Well, what he did and what he went to jail for... not exactly the same so he was a crime boss right a super big component during the prohibition era he was also thought to have been the person who ordered the hit that started the valentine's day massacre he sold illegal drugs guns he was involved in prostitution rings all of that fun jazz right but he was sentenced to 11 years in prison for drum roll please tax evasion Leave it to you to find a way to sneak in white collar crime to every episode. <laughs> I but, can't help it. <laughs> I, I've heard that it's actually like it's pretty common when it came to mobsters. Like you can't tie them to the original crime. So the police mm-hmm. would just go after financial crimes because, you know, at least that like put them in prison. That was the whole point. And people wonder why I love white collar crime. It's because if you're doing shady shit, it's going to show up in your finances and they will get you for that. <laughs> speaking of shady shit didn't he also have like syphilis or something (laughs) yep yes he did Mm. Uh, so he actually was diagnosed with syphilis and gonorrhea when he went to prison for the very first time in uh, atlanta georgia the jail had done drug and std testing when he was first arrived and that was when they had diagnosed him he was then transferred to eastern state penitentiary where he played guards and wardens like a fiddle he lived like a king and other inmates did not take too kind into that. This was part of the decision to move him to Alcatraz for his protection and also to kind of humble him, which it most definitely did because the craziest thing he did was join the Rock Islanders. Like, that was the craziest <laughs> thing he did there. 
He was stabbed in Alcatraz, but it was a pretty superficial wound. Um, and during his time in Alcatraz, he did get progressively worse, and his brain functioning was rapidly declining. Um, he was at Alcatraz from 1934 until 1939. I am dying to know about the Birdman. Oh, yes. So, Birdman, Robert Stroud. Some people say he was Alcatraz's most famous inmate. Um, he had garnished quite a reputation before he even stepped foot on the island. Now, Robert was known as the Birdman of Alcatraz, and I'll get to that in a second. He was arrested in 1909 after murdering a bartender that did not pay his prostitute. He was a pimp and did not take too kindly to someone who did pay for the services and didn't treat his prostitute appropriately. You know what? That's fair. Honestly, I get it. <laughs> He was charged with manslaughter and sent to a penitentiary in Washington State. During his time there, he had been extremely violent and hard to control. He had attacked numerous people, including hospital orderlies, because they wouldn't give him drugs. He also stabbed a fellow inmate. He was then transferred to another high-security penitentiary in Kansas, so it was Leavenworth, um, which a couple of people have come from there, where he did not get on the got get off on the right foot as it started because he was already threatening other inmates he was yelling being very disruptive and definitely had a terrible reputation because he was denied access to a visit with his brother because of his own behavior it made him even more angry and stabbed a guard to death in 1920 stroud's mom had fought for a life sentence instead of death in which president woodrow wilson did allow However, the warden said the only reason that they would allow this was that he must remain in solitary confinement for the rest of his life. Jeez. Stroud had been in Leavenworth Penitentiary for 30 years, where he learned all about birds after seeing um, a sick canary out in the prison yard. He found an injured bird in the wreck yard, like I was just saying, um, and from there, the warden had allowed Stroud to have certain equipment as he became nearly an expert in birds overnight. His behavior had kind of changed, and so he was given, like, a little bit, and he was then starting to work with experts via mail and wrote two books about birds and bird diseases while he was incarcerated. He then created treatments for certain bird ailments that was later on used by vets and bird sanctuaries. And in 1942, guards had found he was using the bird equipment to make an alcoholic brew. Shocker. <laughs> The warden was fed up with Stroud's behavior and requested a transfer to another penitentiary that would take care of him. And we're not talking about the good kind of take care of. <laughs> and thus his arrival to Alcatraz. While I was on tour, um, we passed his cell. This was um, after the recorded thing when they like have you do like little extra stuff. So there's a tour guy that'll like kind of walk you around if you ask. And so there's a bunch of us and he's like, before I tell you on this inmate, you need to repeat after me. There were no birds in Alcatraz. No one was allowed to have birds. Repeat after me. You need to say it. And so we all say it. And he's like, listen, every group has asked how many birds he kept in his cell. And if other inmates were allowed to have birds, because he had birds. So I want it well known that there were no birds in this in this penitentiary. There was none. There was zero. Okay. And so we're like, all right, someone's someone's tired of having to say that there's no birds in, in Alcatraz. For real. Um, it was so funny though. Oh, he was such a great tour guide. So um he wasn't allowed to keep birds, but he was allowed to continue his research and would educate other inmates on birds. 
Now, Stroud was a resident of D Block, which was known as Park Ave. And again, D Block is considered solitary because it doesn't face anybody else. And then you're not given the same privileges, but it's still kind of the same cell block as other people. So it's kind of like a medium between cell block and the whole, right? Um, so he was originally on the top row, which is the third floor, essentially. And he was actually acted pretty heroically during the Battle of Alcatraz in 1946. And we'll get to that. But with him being on the top floor, um, and there is basically just guns going off left and right, and he had sh- shimmied out of his cell. He had climbed down each cell and was like trying to round people up, get them into the hole so that, because it was pretty bulletproof in there. So he was like trying to protect people. Um, and we'll get into more details to like why that's so heroic in a little bit, but he was using himself as a shield and he kept shouting to the warden, like, there's no inmates, there's no bad inmates in Ward D, like you're going to kill innocent people, you're going to kill innocent people, make sure, like, stop shooting in here, they're in cell block A, go get them, like, they're not here, um, and that actually had saved, like, quite a few lives by him doing that. Hmm. So... He, after that, he had lived a pretty quiet life. It humbled him a lot, apparently. And he lived a quiet life in Alcatraz until he was moved to a medical center for prisoners and died in 1962. Gosh, he's such a character. Like, I don't know. He's so interesting. But um, you mentioned the Battle of Alcatraz. I feel like we definitely can't just glaze over that. No, that was. I hope none of our listeners take this the wrong way. When you got to the audio recording of what happened in 1946, you could tell when people were on that because they just, it was silence. It was awe. It was respect. It honestly, the only other time I had ever really felt that deep of like respect for a place was when I went to the 9-11 Memorial where like no one is laughing. No one's looking around. No one's distracted. Like it was... It was hauntingly beautiful, like, just how people, like, memorialize that situation because it was so sad. Hmm. So, to give some backstory, Bernard Coy, who was a very dangerous inmate, had made plans to escape the unescapable penitentiary. It took him a few years of planning and watching. He even resisted the urges to do bad things in prison so he could gain privileges. And when it came time that he had good behavior for long enough, he was allowed to have a job. He had requested custodial services, and he chose this as it gave him a little bit more access to the guards and unknown areas of the prison. He had begun watching the guards, and that's when he noticed time lapses in security in some places. Coy had begun to recruit other inmates who who he felt could play a crucial role in the escape. His recruits were Marvin Hubbard, Joseph Kretzer, and Clarence Carnes. After the battle started, Sam Shockley and Miran Thompson had joined. These inmates had a very long and extensive history of prison breaks, hostage situations, robberies, and gun charges. So this was nothing new to any of the men involved. While Coy was on janitorial duty, he had learned of weak spots in the prison. He learned the guard's routine and he had memorized it. He had also been planning the escape for months before it took place. Mid-morning, May 2nd, 1946, Coy had begun to spring his plan into action. 
Marvin Hubbard, who was a kitchen orderly, had called over corrections officer William Miller to let him out, um, and Miller had to frisk him for any stolen supplies. When Miller was frisking Hubbard, Hoy came from behind and attacked the guard. He stole the keys and let out co-conspirators Joseph Kretzer and Clarence Carnes from their cells. Coy had run over to the gun gallery that housed all weapons for the officers. Wait, <laughs> why the fuck would Alcatraz, housed with some of the most dangerous and impulsive criminals in the country, store all of their weapons in one place? Well, it was a safer tactic because in situations like this, where a guard was attacked, the inmates wouldn't be able to grab a weapon and take over the guards right away because all it takes is one guard's gun to be taken and that's it. So this was a way where if guards were overtaken, they still didn't have guns. They still didn't have weapons or ammunitions. So if a need for a weapon were arise, there was a guard stationed by the gun gallery to unlock it and hand out guns as needed. So... Mm -hmm. (laughs) In theory, it was a good idea for safety. It did have some holes, like how the guard that watched the gun gallery would also be in charge of B and D blocks at times as well. Coy had noticed the times in which guards would patrol, while the other guard that day had watched to patrol B. Coy had greased himself up with axle grease and climbed hand over hand up the railing to reach the gun gallery. He had makeshift bolt cutters that would essentially split the bolts apart, um, and he had starved himself for months to make himself so much skinnier so he would fit. He got up to the gun gallery, used makeshift bolt cutters, per se, and then shimmied through the loosened bars and broke into the gun gallery. Oof, I can see where this is going. Yeah. So, Koi had grabbed a club and had crouched out of view, and the other conspirators had lured the officer to where the uh, where Coy was. They ambushed the officer. The officer was then strangled to an unconscious state. And then um, they used his tie to lower as much arms and weapons as possible to participating inmates. Actually, they were just throwing it. Now, all the inmates that wanted to part- participate were armed and had taken over many corrections officers and were locking them in cells 404 and 403 because that's where one of the inmates had taken Officer Miller. However, this is where the plan began to crumble. Right when the guards were placed in the cells, Officer Miller still had the rec yard key um, and he put it in the toilet. Koi and crew did not know this and asked for the keys as that was the plan to escape. They would take the keys and just run out. This is where prisoners would, um, where was I? So they would ask for keys and then they would go down to the dock. And like, this is where um, the dock that would take like employees or students or whatever to land. However, when they got the keys, there was no rec yard key due to Miller's quick thinking. He knew exactly what they wanted and he got rid of it very quickly. This had caused the armed inmates to get caught in the cell block area. At this time, other corrections officers had noticed something wasn't right, and this is when chaos had ensued. Sirens had started blaring, which had alerted Marines and Coast Guard that something wasn't right. Yeah, I'll say it's an understatement of the year. Understatement of the year that five very dangerous people, and at this point, many cell blocks were unlocked. Some people chose to stay in, some came out, but for the most part, it was those five. So the warden had called in all off-duty officers, as well as police, state police, Coast Guard, Marines, anybody that could help. Um, 
some of the officers had gathered inmates that were out in the workshop in the rec area and had gotten them blankets as it was like kind of chilly that day um, and just kept them in the rec yard. In a violent rage that they couldn't find the rec yard key and that officers were coming, inmates, Shockley and Thompson, um, as well as Joseph Kretzer, took a revolver and leaning against the bars of the cell 403 started unloading rounds into the cramped cell. Officers fell in the hail of gunfire. Some were critically wounded, including Officer Miller, who was able to utter the name of his murderer so people who were writing events could listen. Because I guess there was an inmate next to the cell that was writing everything down. Out of respect, the cell was blocked off during the tour, but it was such a small cell to imagine five guards and four and another was just heavy. To cut a super long story short, once the armed guards had entered the cell block area, it was an all-out gun war. Lieutenant Burgeon had been the leader of trying to get um, to get to the hostage officers. He had rushed in while he was trying to navigate the corridors. He had another officer, Officer Stites, to cover his back, rapidly shooting at inmates who were in charge. Stites was shooting when he stopped and said that he had been shot. Burgeon carried Stites to the couch near the gun gallery where a physician had pronounced him dead. He was the first of many casualties that night. The associate warden took a group of 14 officers and burst into cell house, hoping to rescue colleagues. That team had then fallen under heavy gunfire from the inmates who had positioned themselves on top of C block. One of the officers were able to close the D block access door and then was immediately struck by shoulder by gunfire. The escapees realized that their chances to escape were quickly fading and Shockley and Thompson retreated back to their cells to contemplate and explain their involvement in the plan. Not knowing the, ori- the origin of the barrage of gunfire, the Marines started bombing D-Block with explosives as the cell block filled with dense smoke. Coy, Kretzer, and Hubbard retreated to the utility corridor, and the bombing continued. The Marines drilled holes in the ceilings, lowering hand grenades attached to wire and detonating them. The concussions were fierce, and the prisoners in D-Block hid behind soaking wet mattresses with little protection. The barrage of the gunfire, mortars, and tear gas were ceaseless. Water from the broken plumbing started flowing from tears and flooding D-Block. It was at this time that Robert Stroud had been screaming to the warden to stop all fire in D-Block because there were no bad inmates here and they were in the wrong area, and he tried to protect as many inmates as possible. There was another 48 hours of fire between the five-row prisoners and the officers. Jeez. After nearly 48 hours of battle, the gunfire ceased. In the violent aftermath, Kretzer, Coy, and Hubbard were killed in the corner from bullet wounds and shrapnel. The mastermind, Coy, was found dead wearing a guard uniform. One officer, Officer William Miller, had died due to his injuries. A second officer, Harold Stites, was shot and killed during an attempt to regain control of the cell house. Thompson and Shockley were later executed in the gas chamber at San Quentin for their role in the murder of Officer Miller and Carnes, uh, and Carnes received an additional 99-year sentence. Holy shit. I had no idea that this had even happened. It is so heavy you can like i was saying earlier when you're walking around you can tell when people get to that point because they just it goes from like this is so cool we're walking in history to just silence and just because they have like recordings of um oh my god what's the word i'm looking for reenactments Mm -hmm. so there's like reenactments and it kind of like shows you like what they did and just how heroic officer miller's thinking was because if those men got the key it could have been really fucking bad um worse than it could have been and for there to only be two officer deaths as well as um only those three inmates it could have been so much worse especially with like how much was just going on what 
originally even caused the battle? Like, was it a prison escape? Yeah, so Koi had wanted to escape, and he had recruited a couple other inmates that he knew wanted to do the unthinkable and tried to escape the inescapable island. Well, how many attempts were there? Were there successes? Like, is it kind of like the Titanic that was unsinkable but sank anyways? Like, is this the inescapable but people escaped anyways? So there were 14 attempts. Um, I would like to note that some prisoners say life in Alcatraz really wasn't that bad. They said that the food was actually really good and well-prepared, and they got hot showers, which was basically unheard of, because most prisoners are known for having cold showers. The reason they were allowed to have warm-slash-hot showers was because the prisoners would get used to warm water, so the cold Pacific Ocean would be even more of a shock. It was also believed that by having a couple of decent amenities like solo cells, good food, and warm showers would deter people from wanting to escape. If you have these good things that you're you're not going to have anywhere else, might as well just enjoy it kind of mentality. Mm -hmm. Which one of the reasons historians believe that there were so few attempts. And yes, 14 was low compared to the time period and compared to the um, other high-risk security prisons. And I guess to answer your question, how would you define find successfully escaped is it if they broke out of the physical building is it reaching water reaching land that's a tough question i would say like if people just got out of the building there's nowhere to go but also i'm guessing a lot of people probably drowned trying to escape so i would say success means getting to land gotcha so well All in all, there were 14 attempts, all reaching various states, like you said, making it out of the house, but not to the water, making it to the water, but not to land, and only one are we unknown of, but Mm. we will cover that. Just to spitfire these off really quickly, April 1936, Joe Bowers tried to climbing the fence after he was ordered by corrections officers to stop. He, in fact, did not stop. He was then shot, then fell 50 feet onto the rocky shoreline. He died from his injuries. December 1937, Theodore Cole and Ralph Rowe slowly filed away at the bars on their prison cell windows. They made their way to the water, but this was during a very intense storm that included extreme seawalls and intense fog. They were never found, particularly as their goal was to swim to bay. They are presumed dead. May of 1938, Thomas Limerick, Jimmy Lucas, and Rufus Franklin attacked an unarmed correctional officer, Royal Klein, with with a hammer. They climbed to the roof to try and overtake the watchtower just um, so they could get away without warning. The officer on duty was Stites and shot the two of them. One died and the other survived. January 1939, Arthur, Arthur Doc Barker, Dale Stamphill, William Martin, Henry Young, and Rufus McCann escaped from isolation unit in the cell house by sawing through flat iron cell bars and bending tool roof bars in the window. They then made their way down to the water's edge. They were quickly found by COs before loading onto a boat. May 1941, four inmates had tried taking COs uh, hostage, including the officer who later became the warden. The officers told the inmates there was no chance of escaping, particularly alive, and the inmates eventually gave up. September 1941, another prison break attempt. John Bayless, who was on garbage detail, had snuck down to the water, jumped in to swim to shore. He gave up very easily, saying it was way too frigid and way too cold. He was brought to trial for attempted escape. He then tried to escape the courtroom. That was not successful. 1943, 
Uh, James Borman, Harold Brest, Floyd Hamilton, and Fred Hunter took two officers hostage while at work in the industries area. The four climbed out a window and made their way down to the water's edge. Officers started shooting at the inmates. All the men started swimming. Two were immediately apprehended. Boardman was hit by gunfire and drowned, sinking to the bottom of the ocean. Hamilton was presumed dead, but he actually had been hiding on a rock and was later found and caught. April 1943, Huron Walters was on laundry duty when he disappeared from. He was caught at the shoreline before he could even get into the water. John, um, July 1945, John Giles worked at the loading dock. He was... Um, he was unloading army laundry that was incoming or outgoing. He would occasionally steal different parts of a uniform. And once he had the uniform completed, he switched into it and got on board the army launch. He was immediately caught when the boat went to Angel Island instead of San Francisco Bay. Yikes. Honestly, that one could have been really fucking good. Mm-hmm. I'll give it to him. May of 1946, the Battle of Alcatraz, which we just talked about, which was the deadliest escape in history, and they did not make it. The next attempt after that was nearly 10 years later, July 1956, if that tells you anything about how heavy the the battle truly was. Floyd Wilson disappeared from a job at the dock but was found hiding in the rocks. He surrendered as soon as Theos found him. September 1958, while working on the garbage detail, Aaron Burgett and Clyde Johnson overpowered a correctional officer and attempted to swim to land. Johnson was caught in the water, but Burgett disappeared. An intensive search turned up nothing. Burgett's body was found floating in the Bay Area about two weeks later. December 1962, John Paul Scott and Daryl Parker bent the bars of a kitchen window in the cell house basement and climbed out and made their way down to the water. Parker was discovered on a small outcropping of a rock a short distance from the island. Scott was found washed ashore, barely alive. Teenagers had called the police and he was taken to um, the hospital and was then returned to Alcatraz. Which... Which one was the one that they didn't know whether they made it or not? I thought there was like a like a big escape. Oh, well, I may have left <laughs> that out because it was so detailed. And it did, deserved its own little non-rapid fire round. I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> so, the prison actually never reused the cells of the people that had quote-unquote escaped. And still had the dummies that they used. So it was kind of cool to see that when we were on the tour. Because you'd walk by and I genuinely believed that there was a prisoner in the cell. Like, I I get the CEOs. I get it. Hmm. I get it. So, anyway. June of 1962. One of the last prison break attempts. John and Clarence Anglin, as well as Franklin Morris. Um, also, I'm not condoning absolutely anything at all. At all. Like, zero percent condoning but frank morris i'm not frank morris i think it was uh clarence it was clarence anglin that was extremely attractive oh yes i totally looked it up when i first read the script and (laughs) yeah that's a that's a handsome dude i was like damn i don't know they had hot people at alcatraz not that we should be (laughs) condoning it but i won't lie he had like a little bit of zach efron and i was like yeah yep (laughs) So Frank was placed in Alcatraz because of his numerous attempts and successes from other prisons. Finally, it was decided to put him in the unescapable. Now, there was a fourth person, Alan West, who states he came up with the idea and took credit for the mastermind. 
I personally don't know if I believe that, but I'll digress. Now, all four of the men had met in other prisons, so they had basically all known each other. This was another plan that was long set in motion. They had the patience of a saint. The brothers, along with Morris, had been slowly chipping away at vents that would lead to the top of the cell block. During this time, the inmates had been building lifelike dummies out of materials gathered around the prison. This included encoded toilet paper, soap, and even cement dust from the chips. They also got paint from the crafting area as well as human hair from the barber shop. The next part of the plan was to make life preservers and life jackets as well as rafts. So they used raincoats from other inmates, some donated, some stolen, and started to glue together layers of raincoats for life vests. This was Alan's job as he was falling very behind on the vent in his cell. Alan had also been able to help um, the COs repair a broken vacuum. He had noticed that there were two motors and the vacuum really only needed one to work without anybody noticing. So he took one silently and used the motor to help build a drill to help the chipping process. However, the drill was very noisy, so they couldn't use it too much. John had been working on a raft, which was deflated very easily and carried and um, could be then blown up. It was like an accordion style thing too, so it was like could compact pretty well. On June 11th, 1962, the inmates decided that everything was completed. The four men decided it was time to do the impossible and break out of the inescapable. Of course they did. Yep. (laughs) Men, right? Yeah. (laughs) So with adrenaline going at 9.30 p.m., well after lights out, Morris and brothers had slipped through their vent. West was unable to fit no matter how hard they tried. Eventually, they all agreed to leave West behind. They they climbed through the vents to the roof and dodged all officers. They went to the shoreline, inflated their raft, and they were never seen again. It was heavily wondered if they made it anywhere or if they perished at sea. Do you you know of, like, any of the theories? I don't. I haven't heard of any of the theories, but, like, I would assume that they probably perished at sea. That's what the FBI believes. I personally believe that they made it. Um, I know that the FBI heavily, and I mean intensely, investigated this. So, like, what some white bitch from New Hampshire knows that the FBI does it. You know what I mean? (laughs) Um, They realized that no one had the financial means or ability to have help on the outside. And that their family members had all checked out. Nothing was out of the ordinary. None of their families could even afford a boat in the San Francisco Bay. So, it wasn't like there's no there's no way they even went back to all the letters that they had like that the brothers had received there was no one that they were in communication with um the fbi said that with certainty they believe that they drowned i personally believe that they made it um i think that they probably went south and they had help somewhere some way along the way there were three men who looked like them reported in mexico The mother of the Anglin brothers had also received anonymous letters as well as money that were very cryptic. In 2013, an anonymous letter was written to San Francisco uh, police detailing that Clarence had died in 2011, Morris died in 2008, and that John had cancer. He agreed to turn himself in to go to a healthcare facility, but he never came forward. Oh, see, I didn't know all that. Like, so they very well could have survived. Mm Mm-hmm. Huh. There is there's definitely a, quite a few people that said that they thought they saw the men down south in Mexico. 
it's interesting too because if they did survive they they're the only ones who did right yep Ooh. okay by March 12, 1962, the Department of Justice had made the decision to close the penitentiary doors. This was due to heavy salt air eroding the structure and expenses of boat transportation, as well as island living and the cost of security measures. It was just unattainable to keep the prison open. It was vastly corroding due to the iron and salt air, which greatly compromised the structure and, secure and safety. Some people also believe that between the attempted unknown escape of the Anglin brothers, as well as the Battle of Alcatraz, there were some rumors that that was also like part to do with it, but according to the Department of Justice, which we know how what that means, it was truly just the cost of keeping it up and the deterioration of the site no longer being safe. Hmm. It was also rumored that another factor was that there was eight murders, four suicides, and twenty deaths due to natural illness. Um, so there was over there was over thirty deaths from prisoners. There was a morgue on the island, but they never did any autopsies. All deaths did have to be sent to the mainland by a city coroner because it was technically owned by the Department of Justice. Mm -hmm. In the 29 years as the prison, the Rock saw more than 1,500 inmates housing as many as 400 at a time, and the lowest amount being 266. So what did they do with it after they stopped using it as a prison? Well... In November of 1969, nearly 80 Native Americans had taken over the abandoned land. It was occupied for over two years. The movement cited the 1868 Treaty of Laramie, which states that abandoned state property can be ceded back to Native Americans. Nixon did not like this and sent federal troops to clear out the island in 1971. Yeah, who would have thought Nixon being a dick? (laughs) Couldn't imagine. In 1972, the Golden Gate National Recreation Area was created by Congress, placing Alcatraz Island under the control of the National Park Service. Now, more than one million people visit the island each year, making it one of the top tourist attractions in the entire country. Ghost hunters, psychics, tourist enthusiasts alike still visit the island to this day and pay respects to one of the most infamous islands in the world. Speaking of ghost hunters and psychics... What's some of the folklore, like the haunted stories, or what what do people say happens to them here? Oh my gosh, so many things. So people that lived on the island did talk about like feeling watched, shadowy figures, things being misplaced. Um, in 14D, which is uh, the solitary that they let you visit in the tour, there have been reports of extremely cold spots. Before an inmate died in that room, he stated that something with glowing eyes was trying to kill him. That inmate also had no history of mental illness and was mysteriously strangled that night with no COs nor inmates admitting to the strangulation, which was uncommon. If if an inmate died, you know who did it. Well, to play devil's advocate, like, I'm not saying that I do or don't believe him, but he was also like sensory deprived which you know we both know can cause some hallucinations 100 percent. um i think what really got people was that he was strangled but no one there was no proof of who did it because anytime a seal had killed an inmate you knew whether they got consequences or not it didn't matter like you knew right but he was strangled um and they they couldn't find who did it and he was in solitary so he had nothing in his own cell to like do it himself that's weird super um there had also been long reports of hearing moaning and crying in the cell block areas now apparently a psychic had walked through and said that she saw a butcher who was very evil and wreaked havoc on inmates and ghost hunters um 
but the people who worked for Alcatraz were kind of confused on this because there was no history of a butcher as an inmate. But someone then realized that there was an inmate nicknamed the Butcher who was killed in the 1940s. There was also reports of banjo music coming from the showers. <laughs> yeah, that would be Al Capone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and towards the end of the tenure, guards kept uh, getting count wrong because they swore they would see an inmate that was long gone. Um, and they thought maybe like ended up back in prison. They just didn't get like just didn't get it in the other account. Um, so counts were almost like always off. They, the ghosts were definitely playing tricks on the COs. <laughs> Guards would say they would also hear screams coming from D block. And when they would arrive, there was absolutely nothing. And inmates said that they heard it too, but they didn't know where it was coming from. There was also a really cool story during the tour about how a figure would appear in the warden's office many times. And one of those times was during a Christmas party where many people had reported that the officer was in old uniform walking around, but didn't see him again. Warden Johnson also said that he saw a man outside his window and um, he saw it more often when it was foggy. He, there was one time it was so real he feared an inmate had escaped only to run and find no one was around. Famous ghost hunters like Taps, my absolute favorite. I love you so much if you're listening. Um, the Atlantic Paranormal Society from the show uh, Ghost Hunters, as well as Ghost Adventures, who I don't love at all actually Mm -hmm. um and then ghost files and so many other ghost crews have visited the notorious location i am a huge 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 fan of taps like look oh just to put into perspective okay i'm a taurus i need my bedtime my mom i would go down for nap time on time i would put myself to bed i was never a child that stayed up past like 8 30 ever even in my teen years except for two nights i was wednesdays for ghost hunter and Tuesdays for American Idol, which that was like a cultural phenomenon. Like, you can't blame me for that. I'm suddenly realizing my mistake in having a cancer child. <laughs> she hasn't slept in so- four years. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. I, honestly, my mom was like, oh, it's such a dream because I, I'd be like two years old. I'm like, all right, mom, it's time for bed. She's like, it's seven. I'm like, yeah, let's go, lady. Pick it up. I want to go to bed. My best friends, <laughs> their kid is exactly like that. Um, he's a Scorpio, though, but... I'm so jealous. <laughs> so when I tell you that I stayed up till 10 o'clock on a school night to watch Ghost Hunters, I don't know how much more I can tell you that that's how much I love them, okay? <laughs> <laughs> to this day, I still think TAPS had one of the best investigations of Alcatraz. They were so kind and respectful and really tried to debunk the story as well, embracing them. They did have a few um, EVPs, which is an electronic voice phenomenon, um, such as hearing a noise and they knew that no one was around them. They actually asked the spirit to do it again on the recorder and you could hear a very loud no. It was eerie. There was also an EVP saying Burnett 374. um, And as it turns out, there was an inmate named Burnett in cell 374. That was like jason's like crowning glory <laughs> it was great also steve my favorite i love you so much um was in the hospital ward where he and brian were trying to provoke the bird man and they had bird feathers and then they said it felt instantaneously freezing and all of a sudden the door had slammed Ugh. i know ghost adventures found some creepy things but i also hate them um same and by them i just mean zach also aaron's same. great Zach's just whatever. <laughs> it just felt so fake and staged that it just genuinely could not 
ethically say what they found because I don't believe it. Um, country singer Trisha Yearwood also had creepy experiences. That's detailing. So I know. Uh, that it felt like someone was grabbing her as well as a friend. Um, and then they were taking photos on the staircase to the Spanish dungeon because they were given like a private tour. Um, and in one of the photos, you can actually see a really clear apparition. Hmm. Reports um, during private tours include sound of someone coughing in the infirmary, screaming from D block, crying from A, B, and C block, um, men lying in bed, as well as hearing someone near the gun gallery um, and like creaky, like weird sounds that kind of by the gun gallery. So there was definitely like a lot of weird things that have that have like happened. Didn't you mention that you had like some unique experience on the island? Yeah. Um, this is before I really came into my witchiness. Um, I didn't necessarily know what it was, but I was in, um, we were like touring the hole and they only allowed a few people in at a time because it was so small. I didn't make it through the threshold. I nearly fainted and vomited at the same time. My poor husband, I walk in, I immediately am like uneasy and he like grabs me by the shirt and pulls me out. He goes, I don't think you should go in there. And I was like, you know what? I don't I don't think I should either. Great idea. I don't think I should. Um then it was over by the gun gallery. Um I went to walk kind of like close to it, but there was I just couldn't. I just like kept walking and I was like hitting a wall. I was just like, why can't I not? Like Dustin's walking further ahead. He's grabbing my hand and pulling me and he's like, What are you what are you doing? I was like, I can't. Um and he's like, uh oh, you good? <laughs> And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> Again, I didn't know what I was at that point. Um, I knew my mom had abilities and my mom had texted me. She's like, I know that you went to Alcatraz, but wherever you are, you need a breather because I can feel your energy from literally across the country. Um, and so I was like, oh, <laughs> yeah. So it was like, I really want to go back now that I understand more about myself. But it was really kind of the energy there. Even I wonder- for someone that... Sorry to interrupt. I wonder if it would be, like, easier for you to manage because you do know what's going on or if it would be, like, more difficult. I don't know. It could go one way or the other because sometimes knowing makes it easier. But sometimes now that I'm super in tune, like, if I was feeling that way and I wasn't in tune with myself at that time. Yeah. I can't. I don't even want to know what it would feel like. And I definitely remember walking by a cell, too, and I really thought someone was in the cell to the point where I stopped and I was like, holy shit, is someone, like... I genuinely, honestly, 100% believe someone was in the cell. Um, and then other people around me looked at me like I had 10 heads. And I was like, hmm, maybe I just <laughs> need some fresh air. So here are just some fun facts that I couldn't really like work into the script. Um, but I feel like were worth mentioning. So the first, uh, Alcatraz was the first lighthouse on the coast. There was an inmate who cut off multiple fingers. And then he um, did die trying to escape so like what you doing buddy right um there was no life sentence execution performed at the prison so even if you were sentenced for execution you would not be executed at the prison that's not what it was there for there were absolutely no females allowed to work or be inside the building unless married to an inmate some inmates would go the rest of their lives without hearing a female voice ever 
It was also kind of mentioned here, but you were not sentenced to Alcatraz, nor was it your entire sentence. You were sent there from other prisons if you were deemed a problem and could only go back to your original prison if you had showed model behavior or rehabilitation. Hmm. I didn't know that, that it wasn't like a, like you didn't spend your whole sentence there. Nope. It was literally like, oh, you're you're escaping this prison way too many times and you're doing you're escaping that prison too many times like off to Alcatraz you go and you're there you can finish out your sentence or you cannot it was really and that also like really fluctuated too because you never knew how long someone was going to be there some people could be there for two months some people were there for decades like it truly just man imagine going from like Rikers to Alcatraz where you get the good food and the hot showers and then they're like all right well time to go back Mm mm-hmm honestly i will say that's super smart of the prison to be like let's give them let's let's not give them reasons to run like if we Mm -hmm. give them good food and warm showers and their own cell blocks that promote safety and like at the end of the day how bad can it be you know like yeah you're still in prison and yeah we still treat you like garbage but if you're gonna be in any other prison why not be with the one that has decent amenities so that like you're not enticed to run away yeah exactly oof Well, (laughs) Justice, you did such a good job on this episode. Um, (laughs) I think this is like the most well-researched episode that we have so far. Um, I learned so much. I hope that our listeners did as well. Thank you, friends, for staying while we talked about the dark, macabre history of Alcatraz Island, all of the twists and turns on the rock. Don't forget to follow us on social media. Check out our new merch. Link will be in the show notes as usual. Thank you guys so much for listening and we can't wait to talk to you next week. Bye.